If you have your Bibles, now would be a great time to find where you're going to be. We're going to be in chapter 9. We're going to cover verses 1 through 14 this morning. Initially, I was going to only do 1 through 10. After reading the passage, 1 through 14 seemed to fit a little bit better. So here's something that happened to me recently, something I never thought was going to happen. I traded in my 2009 Nissan for van. And I'm not going to lie, I love it. I love, love, love it. If you were going to ask me 15 years ago, 10 years ago probably, would you ever get a minivan, Ryan? Absolutely not. How dare you even put that thought into my brain? It won't happen. Here's the reality of it. Over a period of time, as my girls got bigger, as Gabrielle's chair got bigger, of all this stuff that we need to carry around with us on a regular basis, a small little sedan with the trunk that seemed to be shrinking over time just wasn't cutting it anymore. It just wasn't enough. It wasn't sufficient enough. So we bit the bullet. We got rid of the car. Now we have this van. And I got to tell you again, I love it. I am living that dad life, and I'm proud to be doing it. This passage we're going to read this morning kind of illustrates a little bit of the same. Sometimes this old system, this old vehicle, this old process that we get into is just simply not enough anymore. It's just not enough. It's not sufficient anymore. So there needs to be change. And obviously there wasn't this life, world-altering change in our lives that caused us to buy this van. But what we're talking about with the tabernacle and this old system of worship and what Jesus did for us on the cross who tore the veil, which we'll see a little bit later, and allowed us to enter into the kingdom of God, that's something that's significant, and it changed the way that we do things. And hopefully we'll see that as we read our passage and study it this morning. So again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 9. We're going to be in 1 through 14. Uh, if you are, are viewing online or here on, in person, the, the, the passage will be behind me on the screen as well. So please uh, follow along if needed. Verse 1, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared in the first section in which there was a lampstand and a table on the bread of the presence. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, there was a second section called the most holy place. And having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which there was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot speak now in detail. These preparations, having thus made, been made, the priests go in regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second section the, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, for which he had offers himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with the food and drink and the various washings, regulations for the imposed until the end or the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, 
not, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead, of dead works to serve the living God. There's a lot there. I know that. There's a whole lot going on there. Um, and what we see, in short, this passage speaks to this, this Jewish way, this old system of worship. In its simplest form, that's what it does. And, and what that does is, is what we see today is that, that that sacrifice of Jesus and that blood of Jesus allowed us to, to change and allow this process of worship to change. And that grants us direct access to the Father, because Jesus has assumed the role of high priest, as we've seen all throughout the Hebrews. So here's our main idea today. It's a little bit long, but it covers everything that we're going to cover this morning. Because of Jesus's fulfillment of the old tabernacle, we can freely worship, have a clear conscience, and serve in truth. That's our main idea. So the rest of the morning, what I want to do is, is kind of unpack these three words, these three main ideas, these truths. And, and we're going to close with some practical things that I think we can do today and moving forward that will help us in our lives as followers of Jesus to worship him in spirit and truth. So there's a couple things I want to do quickly before we get to that. First thing I want to do is discuss the tabernacle itself. I won't go into a lot of detail because it's a lot going on there. Okay, so I'm not going to go through all that detail. First thing that we're going to do is like, let's just discuss this and see what this says and see what this kind of helps us to do. First thing is here is we must recognize that everything in the tabernacle, everything, all the furniture and everything that we see all points to Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is trying to help these early Christians to see that more clearly. In the first five verses, the author speaks to their old sacrificial system, as we saw. And it speaks of these furnishings, and it speaks to these, uh, uh, the holy place and the most holy place. It does, he doesn't mention the outer place for some reason, but he mentions all these other areas. And, and what we see here, and you'll see it on the screen behind me. I know it's a little hard to read particularly. Um, but the, the interesting thing about all these things, and again, it, they, they all pointed to Jesus in one capacity or another. I like verse 5. I think it's kind of funny. You know, author's basically saying, you know what? We don't have time to talk about all these things in detail. We don't, we don't have to talk about all these things in detail. But I'm going to talk about them a little bit in detail, if you don't mind. The, the example in the outer courtyard, so the outer courtyard, it holds the levier and a washing bin, which is a washing bin, and it, and it holds the altar. And, and the levier represents this cleansing of power of the blood, of the animals that were done there. And of course, uh, it represents here that, that cleansing power of Jesus and his blood, which we'll see a little bit more later. Inside the holy place, so which is I think called the second area, inside this holy place, which is mentioned in verse 2, it, there's the lampstand, there's a table of showbread, and then there's this altar of incense. Uh, interestingly enough, and I don't have the answer for you, for some reason the author of Hebrews puts the altar of incense in the most holy place, which is it's not there, but we don't know exactly why he mentioned it that way. And the lampstand, realistically, it represents Jesus as the light of the world because the light that's coming in is only visible 
in that lampstand when you're in that place. So it represents Jesus as, as the light of the world. The showbread represents Jesus as the bread of life, right? The bread of life. And then the incense, and we see this particularly when we get into Revelation, it represents the, 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 the prayers, right, and the intercession of Jesus. So we can go on and on. Um, and then, I'm sorry, the, the most holy place, uh, which is also called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place is, is where the Ark of the Covenant is held. And, and that's where we see that inside the ark, there's uh, the manna, there's Aaron's rod that was budded, and then there's the, uh, the tablets. And uh, you'll have to go to the round table to have some discussion about what those three possibly represent. The author here mentions the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. The mercy seat represents Christ's atoning sacrifice, that atoning sacrifice through that shedding of blood. Because that, sh- that blood is shed over the cherubim on that, that uh, mercy seat. And again, we can go on and on and on about this, but everything, again, just the, the primary objective of this is to understand how all of these things point us directly to Jesus. The second thing I want to do is, is kind of break down a little bit of what I mean when I say that, that Jesus fulfilled this picture of the old tabernacle. Right, so uh, there's a few verses I'll throw out there. They're not listed on your um, on your your bulletin outline, so jot them down if you need to. John one fourteen it says that the Word became flesh and it dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as if the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that phrase "dwelt among us" is such a cool word. It, it literally means He pitched His tent, which also can be translated He tabernacled with us. So obviously that word is speaking of Jesus. That, that, it's such a neat word. In addition to this, we also know from Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, that the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two when Jesus was crucified. It was torn in two. It was torn. Um, and again, that's so significant because that just means that now there's access through this perfect sacrifice of Jesus Second Corinthians 3.18, the men, we, we looked at this just a week and a half ago. The, it says that, the, the, again, that the veil has been lifted, and now that we can behold the glory of the Lord, we can, we can see God figuratively through that. And then, of course, probably the most clear example or a very clear example is Jesus himself from John 14.6, where he says, I am the bread, I am the life. But then further than that, he, he says that he is the only way to the Father, just like we saw with the kids this morning. So he was that final and that finished sacrifice. And he was that, create, that, that finished work, and he completed the work as mediator between man and God. I recently finished a book. I know I do read sometimes. It's crazy. I finished this book. It was, it was a call for revival. And it was based around uh, a pastor who was he's actually a, somebody I know personally. Um, and his, uh, it was his personal story. Of, of his involvement and his, his change of heart and how he became born again during the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s. A really neat story, and his whole thing is he's calling everybody, we've got to get back to that. What happened to the Jesus movement? What happened to that group of men and women who came to the Lord during that time who were on fire? One of the sayings and one of the, the figures that came out of that movement was the symbol, One Way. Right? And we're all familiar with this symbol of one way and this, this idea that there's, again, there's only that one way to Jesus. There's only that one way. To, so no matter what we do, no matter how many times we do it, or with things that we maybe don't do, 
those are not going to get us closer to the Lord. Only Jesus can provide that way. Only Jesus is that one way. So a few moments ago in our main idea, I said there's going to be these three key words or these three truths that I want to pull from this passage. So the first one that we, uh, we see here is that we can freely worship. So because of what Jesus did, we can freely worship our God. So there's a lot of things that we can actually learn about God from this passage here. First thing we can learn from God in this passage is that God's a, a God of order. God is a God of order. Everything he did, moving up to that one point in history and obviously beyond, everything he did has a purpose. And we can easily spend a lot more time than we did talking about the tabernacle and everything else that that goes along with it. In fact, John MacArthur, who's a famous pastor out of Southern California, says that there's over 50 chapters in the Bible that talks about the tabernacle. You know how many there are in creation? Two. There's only two passages in the scriptures that speak exclusively of the creation, but over 50 that talk about the tabernacle. So I think it's safe to say this was an important event. I mean, it was an important function. So why do you think that is? I think in part, this may be because this is where God chose to manifest his presence among his people. And in an earthly copy of the heavenly tabernacle, if you recall, that's what Pastor Pat talked about a little bit last week. And I think more than that, it's, it's also because another point, sub-point here is that God instructed his people to do it. God instructed his people to build this temple. So God created a systematic approach to his people in that present time to worship him. And it was all focused around his holiness and it was focused around the obedience of the people. And another area that we can look at is, is when we have to recognize that this was a temporary and incomplete process. When we see this when we get into verses 6 through 10, and there's, there's this function, it describes the function of the priest during that time, and of course even the worshipers. So the people have this free a- access to go into the outer area. But what's funny and interesting about that is there's only one way to enter there as well. There's just that one tent and that that one uh, curtain that they all enter through into that outer area. So they all still have to enter one way. But there's that outer area that everybody has access to. That's where they'll bring in their sacrifices. And then the priests are the ones who who go into the holy place, and they're the ones who have access to enter that area alone. And that's where they'll do some of the sacrifices. But then that that holy of holies, that most holy place, only the, the high priest has access to go in there, and he does that only once per year. There's a restricted process there. Um, That once per year that they enter that, that's called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, as we see it today as well. And and what that tells us about this system, if anything else, it was restricted. And in a way, it was impersonal, if you think about it. And I think it was obviously very ritualistic, and it was no longer relevant when Jesus tore that veil. So we see here that Christ and in Christ, that system changed. John Piper, another uh, well-known pastor, I think he's in Minnesota, he says this. He says, the whole point of this book of Hebrews is to say that the coming of Christ, the Son of God, into this world is the ending of the present time, which is a phrase used in the text, of the old, strange, foreign way of relating to God. And at the beginning of the Reformation, where Christ himself replaces the high priest and the temple and the blood of the animals and the food of the drink and drink rituals. And he says, that's the point of Hebrews. That's the point 
uh, the author is attempting to make here. Second thing that we can learn and second thing that, that helps us to understand where this passage has taken us is that second area there, and that second word, is that we can have a free conscience. This one's a little harder to swallow, but let me, let me give you an illustration. How many of you have a sibling? Okay, how many times have you done something or that sibling has done something to you that maybe hurts you or upsets you? I'm just going to keep my hand up. How many times has your parent told you or guardian told you, go apologize to your sibling? And how many times do you walk over angrily, I'm sorry? Yeah. So how many times then does your parent or guardian have to tell you to go back and do it like you mean it? Right? It happens. And that's a, that's a good illustration of what we're talking about here. The conscience part comes in where, you sit back and you realize, man, I probably shouldn't have done that. I should go apologize to my brother, which I'm sure each and every one child in this room does that on a regular basis. That conscience helps us to, to see that and to act on that before mom or dad has to tell you to go do it. So when Christ suffered that death on, that, on the cross, when he, he took that part of the sacrificial lamb, he took with him all of our past, present, and future sins with him. And in doing so, realistically, when we look at the past with this point, is we no longer have to have that guilt of our past sin. We no longer have to have that guilt because he's already declared us not guilty before the Lord. And if you're like me, that's like, wait a minute, I, I am guilty. I am a sinner. I am a wretched individual. But God has said not guilty. Jesus said not guilty before that, that God the judge. And that's remarkable. The author here is telling us that we have no ability to be guilt-free under the old system or in, under any other system that somebody today would even tell you. That only under this new system, the, the, the system over the new covenant with Jesus, that's where the last and only effective sacrifice took place. And that was the only one that was sufficient to atone for our sin. And obviously this ties, this, this ties us to our next sub-point, which is that, that only the blood of Jesus can provide forgiveness of our sin. Only the blood of Jesus can, can provide that forgiveness. I want to peek ahead. This will be a sneak peek next week to verse 22. This clearly helps us to see that. It says that indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Not without the shedding of blood is there no forgiveness of sins. Verse 9 of our passage today also ties directly into verse 14. And it says, how much more, this is verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It allows us to serve. But because of that, the, this worship and this true worship is complete in Jesus because of the work that he did. Again, we can't do that work that's required. So all of these rituals, these relics, these traditions, all they do is they take the worshiper's eyes and focus off of Jesus. And I want to draw your attention back again to verse 1. And this idea of the earthly place of holiness reminds us that under the old covenant, we only had these shadows and types 
And those phrases, those words should be very familiar to you by now as well. And these shadows and types that only point us to Jesus. And it's, it's under that new covenant that we have the substance, right? We had, they had shadows and types, but we have what that was and what that meant. We have that substance. And then number three, because of this, we can serve in truth. Christ opened up the door to a personal relationship with the Father. I scroll through Facebook fairly regularly, and every once in a while there's like a a local news channel or even a a, a national one, and there's like a headline that's like, you know what, that looks interesting. Let me click on that headline. So I click on that headline, and it takes me to a landing page, and they want me to subscribe in order for me to read the article. I don't want to subscribe. So you know what I do is my mind focuses and switches back, and I'm no longer interested in that article because I don't want to do the subscription. Think about that in relation to Christ. Before Christ, that access to the Father was limited, just like a subscribe function. Now, under this new covenant, the Father is accessible and relatable and relational because Jesus paid the price of this subscription. I'm so sorry for the cheesy illustration. Saving us by declaring us before a holy God. Jesus paid that price so we can have access to the Father. And it reminds us again that access under the old covenant was limited. And that reason for that is because he was holy. Even the one man, the high priest who had access to the most holy place, was imperfect. He had to atone for his own sin before he can atone for the sins of others. And comically, in my brain now, they even had, they tied a rope to his ankle in case he went in there and messed something up and dropped flat in his face so they can drag him out of there so they wouldn't go in and have the same thing happen to them. From what I understand, too, they put a little bell on them so they can listen for that, too. So they, they, they dragged him out of there in case he did something wrong because he was an imperfect person as well. And as we saw in verse 12, Christ secured an eternal redemption once and for all. So the Father breaks down this limitation and these these restrictions that were once in place through Jesus. And because of that, now we have a much better way, a much complete way. Do you have that personal relationship with the Father? Are you spending that quality time and those meaningful moments of time with him with his people if not you can do that today if you don't have that personal relationship with god you can do that today the bible says something very simple if you confess with your mouth that he is lord you will be saved and you can do that again today and again that's only because that the blood of christ has cleansed us and because of that we can live freely I often think of Roman eight, Romans chapter 8 when, when this idea of a, of a clear conscience comes up and this idea of, of us being able to live freely in Jesus um, because I, I, I know it's difficult sometimes to accept that because we know us. I know my heart. I know what I've done. I know what I'm capable of doing. But guess what? God does too. The Father knows before you knew. The Father knows this too. And that's why I love Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This should be a very familiar verse. There is therefore now no condemnation. 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that means that following Christ means that we're wholly dependent on his finished work. And then following Christ means that we're acknowledging that finished work of redemption that he paid for us on the cross. And we can't add to this. And we can't do this on our own accord. So we know that, that because we are free, we can freely serve the living God. Drawing us back to, again, verses 1 and verses 14, it, we see that we can serve freely knowing that serving God is an act of worship. What's really neat, if you look at the word serve in the ESV in verse 14, it's closely related to that word worship in verse 1. The word serve is, is the, uh, the action of service. So verse 1 is the action of service. Verse 14 is the, speaks of the actor of that service. It's like a divine service that's happening there. I think it's a really neat connection. So that means serving God is part of our worship experience. And this is seen all throughout the scriptures. The kids uh, with a couple of the groups last week, we looked at Genesis 1 and 2. And we saw on that account that Adam was one of the first people to serve. He was given a service to complete as part of his act of worship. So it started with him, and it continues all the way through us even today. And Jesus himself said it about him, him, his, own, his own ministry. He says that he came to serve and lay down his life for others. And we saw that in Matthew 20, 28. So we, when we approach the service and what we do for others and how we worship and serve him, when we approach that, as a service, as an act of worship, that means we're, we're wholly dependent and trusting God in that result and with the outcome. So we've seen this morning that because Jesus' fulfillment of the old tabernacle, we can freely worship, we can have a clear conscience, and serve in truth. That's what we've seen in this passage. So now what? Now what do we do with this information? Number one, I would say this. Let Jesus be the focus of your worship. Let Jesus be the focus of your worship. Maybe there's a certain song that we sing here that maybe you don't really like. Maybe you would love to hear more hymns. Maybe you would love to see the pastor do a little bit more of this and a little bit less of this. Maybe you would love to have like just a, a weekly prayer meeting like other Baptist churches. Maybe you would like to have the Lord's Supper every single week because that's what some other churches do and it makes me feel good. It makes me feel good. I think you get the idea. Maybe you like to see more suits than jeans. Right? We can go on and on. There, there's this preference that a lot of people have, but I want you to remember this. Worship isn't about you and I. And when we make it about you and I, we're obviously taking our focus off of the Lord. It's about him. It's about what he has done. And it is very easy and possible that we lose sight of this from time to time. And it is possible that we allow certain things to disrupt worship. So I, I ask you, don't let that happen in your own lives. And I would say this is probably one easy way to do that. When you approach the Lord in any type of worship, in any type of, of, of devotion, just pray before you begin. Pray before you enter that space. Pray that he allows you to focus on him during that time. It's so easy to get sidetracked. Ask God to help you keep that focus on him during your worship. 
I tell you what, if you're here at Thorny, that's what we want for you. We don't want your attention to be on me or Pat or the worship team. We want you to focus on the Lord, and that's what we want to, to do in our worship. Second thing, don't allow past mistakes to dictate how you worship today. Don't allow your past mistakes to dictate how you worship today. Jesus said uh, in Luke 19.10, he says this. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Which means before him, we were all lost before the Lord. We were all lost and we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So by grace through Christ, we've been declared righteous despite our past despite those past sins and that past life. And the beauty of this is that, again, it's not up to you and I. It's not up to us, but it's he, it's the Lord who saves. And we can't change what's already happened, can we? So if he's already forgiven us, that means we have a new life. And then finally this, find somewhere to serve. Find somewhere to serve. There are always opportunities to serve inside the body of Christ and even outside the body. And we would love to get you plugged in somewhere. If you are looking to serve somewhere, we, we, we have opportunities right here in our church. And we would love to get you plugged in. All you need to do is, is let us know. Let us know how we can do that. There's also great local community organizations that could use your help. There are also these local organizations that can use your help and that you might be able to serve in. So again, are, are we using our time? Are we using our resources that we might have? Are we using those to serve God and to serve others? So these passages, I, I, I would, I, I, I'd admit, are not always easy to kind of navigate through. But I think this one here is nice and it's, it's great because what it does is it points us directly to Jesus. And it points us directly to Jesus. So may our lives reflect a life that points directly to Jesus. In the way we worship, in the way that we have our, a joyful attitude towards the work that Christ did for us, and the one who forgives, and through the way that we serve, that we serve God and serve others. So may we live that life that reflects and points us to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you um, for giving us that freedom to do these things that we've discussed today. Pray, God, that you do allow us to, to take whatever next step that might be in our lives, whether that to, to, to move forward and have confidence in, in our ability and, and, and to worship you. Help us to, to live in a manner that allows us to be free worshipers because you've given us that gift. Let us have a, an attitude of thanksgiving that allows us to just be in absolute awe of what you've done for us. Thank you for, for saving us. Thank you for calling us your children, even though we don't deserve it. Thank you for watching over us and caring for our needs, even in those rough times where we don't always feel it. But we have that confidence, God, if we're followers of you, we have that confidence that you are watching over us and you're caring for our needs and for that, God, we're so grateful. But if there's anybody here this morning, Father, that needs to, to take a step, I just pray that you urge them right now through the power of your Holy Spirit. Just let them to take that next step, whatever that might be. 
we'd love to be a part of that, Father, so help us to, to build into one another's lives, as we'll see in a couple weeks in the same, same book. Help us to, to build into the lives of one another. Help us to, to love one another in a way that's just a reflection of what you've done for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' holy name.